You know, I don't think anyone can deny that we live in a global community today. And complete isolationism really isn't an option. What goes on halfway around the world affects us in more ways than we can imagine. You know, from the clothes we wear to the blueberries and strawberries we eat out of season, our lives are intertwined with people of many cultures and beliefs. And other than the uh, occasional encounter with a customer service representative who is on the line in India, uh, the loss of a job that's been outsourced or a virus that invades our shores, we generally see that as a, as, as a good thing. You know, the intermingling of cultures and races and religion is seen as the best way to live in today's world. In fact, some have so elevated pluralism and multiculturalism that to question any aspect of it is seen as nationalistic or, or tribal or religious bigotry. Yet, the apostle to the Gentiles, who took the gospel beyond the borders of Judaism and was willing to become all things to all men that he might by all means save some, cautioned us not to be bound together with unbelievers. In fact, he prohibited us from being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And when he wrote, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, he was picturing something Moses had prohibited some 1,500 years earlier. In Deuteronomy 22.10, we read, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, both oxen and donkeys were used to work the field. And two animals were often yoked together to, to pull a heavy load or to, to plow deeper. And, and that was fine, as long as the animals were compatible. But God prohibited the yoking together of two animals that were fundamentally incompatible. Something that, sad to say, still happens today. You know, a modern visitor to the Middle East actually reported seeing a camel and a donkey yoked together. The camel was three times the size of the donkey with legs three times as long, yet the farmer had yoked them together to pull his plow. The camel was lumbering along and the donkey was trying for all he was worth to keep up with the farmer continually whipping him to make him go faster. It was cruel and both animals were obviously miserable. Well, God doesn't want to see his creation misused in such a fashion, and they were not designed to work together like that. In the same way, Paul told us not to be bound together, to be yoked together with unbelievers. We're not to be tied together in relationships that are bound to fail because of fundamentally incompatible natures. And Paul illustrated why such relationships won't work by asking a series of questions 
that have an obvious answer. We're continuing our study in 2 Corinthians, picking up in chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The first question Paul asks is, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? How can these two things work together in a partnership? They can't. They can't. One wants to do what's right, and the other has no concern about what is right. Obviously, two such people can't work together on a continuing basis. Their ethical differences are bound to come into conflict. I remember counseling a man some years ago who was extremely frustrated because his employer was asking him to do something that he knew was not right. He was in a real dilemma, whether to disobey his boss or to do what he felt was wrong. It's hard. It's hard working for someone whose standard of ethics differs from your own. It's much worse to try to be in a partnership with such an individual. You know, the fundamental difference between righteousness and lawlessness will always lead to conflicts between two such people yoked together. And the only way to avoid the conflict is to avoid the relationship. Next, Paul asks, what fellowship has light with darkness? Again, the answer is obvious, none. For as Jesus said, the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You know, if I'm walking in the light of God's word, and someone else is trying to avoid revealed truth and stay in the dark, we will not be able to join hands and walk together. We're not headed in the same direction. It just will not work. Next, Paul actually strikes the heart of the matter when he asks, what harmony has Christ with Belial? Now, Belial is an Old Testament word that means worthlessness. And it's used here to refer to Satan. What harmony, Paul is asking, is there between the one who is most worthy and the one who is absolutely worthless? Again, the answer is none. Their objectives are in direct opposition to one another, so obviously there can be no harmony between them. Then he simply asks, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now, some might suggest that they have much in common, common needs, common interests, common concerns, but, but do they really? 
There may be surface similarities, but if you go deep enough, I think you'll discover that believers in the final analysis really have nothing in common with unbelievers. And that's true because there will always be fundamental differences in the way they view even those shared needs, interests, and concerns. I think most of you are well aware that I shared a unique interest with many unbelieving falconers for 25 years. We had some great times together. We, we loved flying birds. But our fundamental differences were obvious. If they weren't, you wouldn't have wanted me to be your preacher. Believers really have nothing in common with unbelievers. Not if Christ is Lord of everything they do. Paul's final question is, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Again, the answer is none whatsoever. To bring idols into the temple of God was an abomination to Almighty God and a direct affront to him, and is still true today. To bring anything into our life that competes with our devotion to God is to bring an idol into our life. And believers can have only one master, one Lord, one God. We cannot serve two masters because their demands are not in agreement. A binding relationship between a believer and an unbeliever just will not work because they're fundamentally different in nature. There can be no partnership, no fellowship, no harmony, no agreement, because they really, at the bottom line, have nothing in common. The answer to all of Paul's questions is none. So it's foolish to think such a relationship will work. And it doesn't please God. Let's read on. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Believers have a special relationship with God. He has come to live within them and to walk among them. That separates them from everyone else. That marks them as God's own people. And he wants that distinction to be readily recognized. He wants to truly be a father to us. And have us depend on him. And on the brothers and sisters that he gives to us. For us to go outside the family to build basic personal relationships is to, in effect, say, I want to choose my own family. What you're giving me is not enough. That doesn't please our Father. 
It doesn't please our Heavenly Father. In fact, he specifically tells us to come out from the world at large and separate ourselves for his service. That's what it means to be a church. The Greek word ekklesia means called out ones. We've been called out of the world. So if we bind ourselves into relationships with unbelievers, we are in direct opposition to God's will and his wishes for us. Now, we do have to be careful on this point because it's been greatly misused by some in the past. It does not mean that we're not to associate with unbelievers. As we've been learning in our studies together, we're called to be ambassadors, reconciling man to God, and that requires contact with unbelievers. Paul is not advocating that we cut ourselves off from the world and form convents and communes where we can hide until the Lord calls us home. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean, at all mean, with immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. He went on to explain that he didn't want us associating with so-called brothers who practice such things, who are covetous and swindlers and idolaters. And in chapter 10, he actually encouraged the believers to accept invitations to dine with unbelievers. So we are not to cut ourselves off from all associations with unbelievers, but we are to avoid relationships that yoke us together with them. We are to be bound to our Lord. We are to have the yoke of Christ upon us, not a yoke that binds us to the world and forces us to go where our Lord would not have us go. So if we've entered into such relationships, what do we do? They may need to be broken. First verse of chapter 7. Therefore, because of what he's just said, therefore... Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's nothing wrong with an ox and a donkey grazing together in the same pasture, eating from the same trough, or even romping together if they both like to romp. The problem comes when they're yoked together. And the same is true of believers and unbelievers. We are to associate with one another, to work and play together, and perhaps even build bridges of friendship. But we've got to be careful that we don't find ourselves yoked together. So what constitutes a yoke? A yoke is something that so binds us together that we lose the freedom 
to act independently of each other. A friendship could become a yoke. A business relationship could become a yoke. And obviously, permanent relationships such as marriage constitute yokes. In fact, the yoke of marriage is traditionally the primary application of this passage. And that is certainly a valid application. Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that believers are to marry only in the Lord. And yoking yourself in marriage to an unbeliever is certainly not marrying in the Lord. Such relationships with unbelievers won't work. They don't please God. And they may have to be broken. Now, I hasten to say if you are yoked together to an unbeliever in marriage, you are to remain bound together unless the unbeliever takes the yoke off. The marriage relationship is the one unequally yoked relationship that's not to be broken by a believer. And Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. The marriage relationship is of such a high priority in God's eyes that even if you're married to an unbeliever, God wants that marriage to be maintained. In fact, Paul says that the unbeliever is sanctified by the believer in marriage. Now, that does not mean he or she is automatically made right with God, only that they're brought into a special relationship where the Spirit has a better chance of, of working in their life and converting them to the Lord. Peter even gives specific advice to wives on, on how to win unbelieving husbands to the Lord. So a marriage relationship with an unbeliever is not to be broken by a believer. But believers have already been told not to enter into such a marriage. So the only ones who could find themselves in that position should be those who came to the Lord after they were married. All other binding relationships between believers and unbelievers should probably be broken. Paul says we must cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. That means we must take the initiative to break out of relationships that are dragging us from the Lord, spiritually or even physically. If a friendship is beginning to limit our friendship to be and do what God wants, it has become a yoke that needs to be broken. If a business relationship is forcing us to compromise our standards, it has become a yoke that needs to be broken. If a social or fraternal association is making such demands on our time that we find ourselves trying to justify a shift in priorities, it may have become a yoke that needs to be broken. If excessive family commitments 
are preventing us from getting involved with the family of God, we may have to break those extended apron strings. If a romantic involvement is developing with an unbeliever, it must be cooled before it becomes a yoke. The goal of our life must be the perfecting of holiness in fear or respect of God. Now, the perfecting of holiness doesn't mean we become perfectly pious or holier than thou. The word holy means set apart for the Lord. So the perfecting of holiness means that we wholeheartedly give ourselves to the Lord. We refuse to let anything come between him and us. We will not allow ourselves to be yoked to anyone or anything that might pull us away from the Lord. And this is one area in which we must do the cleansing ourselves. You know, Christ cleanses us from sin and puts us into a right relationship with the Father through grace. But we must cleanse ourselves from the entangling alliances that defile us. We've got to make the break ourselves. He will not do that for us. He'll give us the strength to do it, but we've got to make the break ourselves. We must free ourselves from limiting, restricting, binding relationships that prevent us from being what God wants us to be. Are you resolved to being all God wants you to be? I trust that you are. For only then will you find the uncompromising joy and peace of a close relationship with Christ and with his body, the church. If you need to do something to get into a better relationship with the Lord, I pray your New Year's resolution is to do it. Let the Spirit convict you of what needs to be done in your life. And then do what the Spirit convicts you to do. Let's pray. Father, we come before you anticipating a new year. There have been a lot of struggles in the past year, and we're confident there'll be struggles in the new year. But this is an area we can take charge of. Breaking off relationships that are dragging us away from you and from the presence and fellowship of your people. Give us the courage to do what needs to be done. Let us be holy committed to you. Let us be resolved to be all you want us to be. Let this year be a year of spiritual growth and maturity 
and renewed fellowship and joy and a sense of peace that enables us to anticipate your coming and anticipate well done, good and faithful servant. That's my prayer in Jesus' name.